This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan, on Gadigal land. And me, Tegan Taylor, on Jagera and Turrbal land. Today, a simple intervention that could save tens of millions of dollars in eye injuries. A study which shows that relatively few sessions of a particular form of psychotherapy can dramatically help women who are depressed during pregnancy. The link strengthens between children who experience neglect and abuse with dying prematurely when they're adults, often of chronic diseases, and we'll look at how that link might work. But as always, it's been a big week in health news, Norman, not least because last week was Budget Week, and one of the key items announced was aimed at helping more people access affordable GP visits, a tripling of the incentive to bulk bill certain groups of patients. Yeah, it's very welcome, families with kids, people with concession cards, and really increase the volume of bulk billing because... When you bulk bill, a doctor bulk bills, they actually give a 15% discount to the government. Um, and that's a disincentive to bulk bill. And this tripling will actually really give a more meaty fee to GPs. The question is, is it meaty enough to make a difference? And many GPs are saying they're still troubled with increasing costs of running their practice and they're not sure it makes a difference. The other things in the budget that are going to change the nature of general practice and how general practice receives their money, I think are going to have a much bigger impact on people's access to care. And that's something we're going to continue following here on The Health Report. But overseas, a major health advisory body in the US has recommended regular mammograms for women aged 40 and up. It used to be from age 50. So, Norman, I've got a quite a, a vested interest in this, you could say. What's changed in the evidence to prompt this? How does it differ from what we have here in Australia? Well, the American authorities are saying they're seeing an increasing incidence in this age group of breast cancer, and it's often a nastier form of breast cancer that's harder to treat, particularly one that's called triple negative that we've covered in the health report before, where none of the receptors that are accessible to treatment are positive. In Australia, mammography is already available to women aged 40 and over every two years at no cost. It's a woman's choice anytime. At the age of 50, though, the actual screening program really kicks in and you get called in for screening. So what we don't do at the moment is call women in for screening from the age of 40 on. It's not necessarily as easy to do mammography from the age of 40 to 50 because the breast is more dense. You may have to do more tests like ultrasound and maybe even MRI. But if you're 40 and over and you want it in Australia, you can have it at no cost. Mm. And there's another big health story from this week that we're going to delve into in a bit more detail, Norman. The US Food and Drug Administration has recommended a treatment for a disabling genetic disease called Duchenne muscular dystrophy, and it's one of a new generation of gene therapy treatments. Yeah, they haven't actually approved it. There's probably going to be a meeting at the end of May. So this affects about one in 5,000 boys born globally, and they're lacking a gene in their muscles and their muscles lose strength and they don't grow, and it's life-limiting. And this gene therapy takes a part of the gene and with a virus, like a truck or a bus carrying the gene into the cell, changes the cellular function of the muscle, curing the disease in theory. Trouble is, the trials haven't showed a lot of benefit and there has been a debate amongst the advisors. I wanted to find out more about this and also the status of gene therapy in general, and who better to talk to than Professor John Rascal, who heads the Gene and Stem Cell Therapy Program at the Centenary Institute at the University of Sydney. Thanks very much, Norman. 
So we've got this controversy over this muscular dystrophy gene therapy. Briefly, what is the story there? Because yet again, with rare diseases, emotion gets in and the regulators are finding it difficult to deal with some of these. This isn't the first time that this disease, Duchenne muscular dystrophy, has been in the media, especially around the controversies about regulatory approvals. This has really been managed in public simply because of the use of so-called surrogate markers. This is an accelerated program in the United States to bring gene therapies to people who have medical needs as soon as possible. And that's where the controversy really has struggled to come to terms with this. Only 48 hours ago in the USA, there's been a vote which was eight to six in favour of suggesting this approval go forward when the FDA formally consider it at the end of this month. That reflects as to whether or not the surrogate markers accurately reflect what's going on in the patients themselves with this muscle weakening disease. So just to explain, the gene is a very big gene. They've sliced off a little part of the gene, taking it in with a virus to try and restore the muscle. And what the surrogate is, is a marker of muscle growth rather than necessarily getting improvement in the muscle strength and muscle bulk in these children. That's right. There is clinical data in phase one and two studies that prior to this particular result, but that all has come together and reflected in a vote which is really only eight in favour, six against, no abstentions, indicating that it should progress to formal assessment by the FDA. And that's at the end of this month where everyone will be, you know, really looking very closely as to whether the FDA favours this surrogate marker or whether they think the company should go back to the drawing board and provide more advice advanced data, which is now expected towards the end of this year. And this is potentially a very expensive therapy. Absolutely. The current therapies, and there are none approved in Australia other than steroids, which we know do slow the weakening of the muscle in these boys. Currently, there's a $300,000 developed technology, which interestingly, we're very proud of, was developed by Steve Wilton and Fletcher in West Australia that Sarepta licensed to the United States, and it costs $300,000 US a year to administer. It's not a gene therapy, though. It's a so-called exon-skipping therapy that you've previously covered in the health report, Norman. It's a form of genetic therapy, but it doesn't actually genetically modify or indeed cure the patients because it needs to be administered often on a weekly basis, whereas the gene therapy that's currently under consideration is potentially a cure, a single injection once and for all, and that may well modify the outcome of the disease. So in the meantime, we'll just sit and watch and see before Australia starts to consider this, but the pressure is going to be on. Just give us a brief description of the landscape here. Now, you've been working on haemophilia, the lesser known form of haemophilia where factor nine is involved and gene therapy there. What's available now around the world and in Australia in terms of gene therapy? So there are a number of gene therapies that have been approved over the last five years now. And in particular, it's shocking for many to hear that there are over 100. Indeed, uh, we've been working on haemophilia A and haemophilia B, and those two different forms of haemophilia have now got approvals respectively in the European Union and in the United States of America. However, there are other gene therapies that have been approved for one of the commonest blood disorders, which is thalassemia. There are gene therapies for spinal muscular atrophy and blindness, genetic blindness, available now in Australia. And of course, another form of gene therapy, which you can't neglect because it's had such a dramatic effect that you've covered in the health report before, is the cancer immunotherapy based on these 
chimeric antigen receptor T-cells or CAR T-cells in blood cancers. And they've revolutionized the treatment of some leukemias and lymphomas. And just to explain, most people would call that cell therapy rather than gene therapy. What you're doing is taking the cells out, fiddling with their genes so that they attack the cancer and then putting them back in rather than changing the genes of the person themselves. That's pretty well right. You are reprogramming a person's own immune cells, in this case the so-called T-cells, to target markers on the leukemia or the lymphoma specifically. But make no mistake, it is absolutely a form of gene therapy because we're using the genetic technologies to introduce those new reprogrammed so-called chimeric antigen receptors. So two issues here, one of which we referred to a moment ago, I'll come back to, which is cost. But the other is safety, because with the sort of gene therapy we're talking about in muscular dystrophy and other diseases where you've got gene therapy, is the virus that you need to infect the cells to take the new gene in. How safe is modern gene therapy? I think we always need to be vigilant with new technologies when they're introduced, Norman, and gene therapy is no exception to that. That said, in Australia, for example, we did our first human gene therapy clinical trial in haemophilia more than 20 years ago. So the simple fact is that we've been giving gene therapy under strict clinical trials for more than two decades and seeing evidence of some responses. And now as approvals start to become forthcoming in a number of different diseases, that experience is growing. But the bottom line is we need much longer follow-up. We need much longer experience in the real world rather than the arcane world of clinical trials. And all of that means we need to be vigilant at all times when we're introducing new technologies. And finally, can we afford it? I think the question of cost is paramount in everyone's minds. And so we don't even know what the cost of this particular potentially curative gene therapy is in the case of Duchenne muscular dystrophy. I think... But isn't the spinal muscular atrophy one huge, isn't it? The amounts are absolutely jaw-dropping indeed. The haemophilia gene therapy that's been approved in the United States of America as the most expensive medicine ever is 3.5 million US dollars a pop. Now, that can be curative. It is, it is intended to be curative, a single dose, and monetized over a period of decades, which is the life expectancy of these individuals. It actually makes economic sense. It can be a cost-saving over time, but that doesn't change the fact that these could be enormous imposts on the health budget and something that we really need to come to terms with. John, thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure, Norman. Professor John Resco, who's head of the Department of Cell and Molecular Therapies at Royal Prince Alfred Hospital and who clearly knows much more about what we've had on the health report than you or I ever remember. <laughs> Speak for yourself. This is the health report. And Norman, this next story is one for any woman who's either pregnant or thinking about becoming pregnant. Yes, while we rightly have had a lot of focus on postpartum depression as a significant issue for both women and their babies, I mean, when I was training in paediatrics, we were taught to recognise signs in the baby that the mum could be depressed. What's often missed is that postpartum depression rarely comes out of the blue. There's often depression before pregnancy or during it. A recent study has intervened in pregnant women with depression using a particular form of therapy called interpersonal psychotherapy. The study was co-led by Alicia Davis, who's professor of psychology at the University of Denver, Colorado. Thank you for having me. Now, there are a whole variety of evidence-based psychotherapies. Just describe what interpersonal psychotherapy is. 
The type of interpersonal psychotherapy we did is a program called Mom Care, which is a form of brief interpersonal psychotherapy. So it's a time limited, which is a brief psychotherapy that really focuses on relationships, emotions, and ongoing events in a person's life. And then it works on how to change interpersonal relationships in ways that reduce conflict, build support with people with relationships in their life. And this is a form of therapy that has been shown to quickly reduce depression symptoms. In a sense, it's cognitive behavioral therapy applied to your relationships rather than necessarily how you think about yourself and how you are in the world. That's right. So what makes it different than cognitive behavioral therapy, which is another very common form of therapy for depression, is it's very focused on relationships as opposed to changing cognitive thoughts. It's really focused on improving relationships, knowing who you can rely on for support and what types of support maybe different people in your life may be most helpful for, and then strategies for reducing conflict in interpersonal relationships. Before we get to the results of your study, just give me a sense of the sort of questions you ask of the client. I'm actually not one of the interventionists who worked with participants on the study, but it really is designed to focus on issues that that specific person finds important. So the first session the therapist would really talk with them about what they want to focus on. One of the very common things women wanted to talk about, maybe not surprisingly, because we're working with people who are pregnant, is role transition. So the transition to parenting and challenges that may come up as part of the process of going through that transition. The other was things that are challenges related to the pregnancy, maybe things that they're negotiating with their partner, maybe other types of stressors related to their pregnancy. It could even be worries about you know, medical complications or health related to the pregnancy. So we really let them tell us what they wanted to focus on. And then the other types of questions we'd ask them were related to building their social support network. So we had them tell us who the relationships were in their life. And of course, for everyone, that can be different. And then that could be a guide that helped the therapist as they were working on helping them figure out who were the best people to go to for support in their relationships. And one of the assumptions in the study is the evidence, in fact, that we tend to focus on postnatal depression, but women who experience postnatal depression are often depressed during pregnancy or have been depressed before pregnancy. So if you get in early, you've got this potential to change the trajectory once the baby's born. That's exactly right. And that was exactly our motivation, this idea that if we work with people during pregnancy, if we intervene during pregnancy, then we can help people feel better even before the baby is born and have an opportunity to help them with that transition. And that is one of our next steps is hopefully we believe we'll see reductions in postpartum depression as well with this prenatal intervention. So the women were, I think, an average age of about 29 and you randomised them. So some people got a brief intervention, so eight sessions. And then what did the control group get? The control group as part of the standard of care in the hospitals that we work with, everyone was, is screened as part of standard of care. And then anyone who screens high in showing that they have elevated depression symptoms would receive different supports as part of their standard medical care. So this would be referral to mental health services. And then we enrich that. So everyone in our study in that what we call the enhanced usual care group also had a one-on-one -on -one meeting with one of our therapists where they would provide psychoeducation. We would also provide referrals and support, helping them make connections to therapists and helping them find you know, free or sliding scale ways of obtaining therapy. And then the other thing that we did for everybody in both groups is we provided practical support. So the population that we worked with may quite commonly be more socioeconomically disadvantaged. So we also provided both groups with connections to ways to get support, whether it was, you know, food, 
sometimes cell phone support after the baby is born, things like diapers. What effects did the addition of the eight interpersonal therapy sessions have? That's what we're really excited about is we saw quite dramatic reductions in depressions. At the start of our study at baseline, both groups had around 37% of the individuals met criteria for major depressive disorder. By the end of pregnancy, the individuals in our mom care treatment group only 6% of them met criteria. So that's a pretty dramatic decrease in depression diagnosis. And then we also measured symptoms of depression and saw significant decreases in depression symptoms for the whole group in our interpersonal psychotherapy mom care group. How can you implement this at scale? Because not all clinical psychologists are trained in interpersonal therapy. That's a really terrific question, and that actually is a really nice lead into one of the things we're working on right now. So we are working now with one of the hospitals in Denver to try to implement a sustainable program so we could offer it to everybody who comes to that hospital. We are setting up group-based so that we can help see more people at the same time, offering both in-person and telehealth versions of this. And the idea is that there is a manual that we would provide, but that we believe we can do this without having people who are specifically trained in our model, that we would provide a workbook. The people administering this are people who have training in therapy, but they don't necessarily have to have training in this model. And hopefully we'll be able to show that that is also successful in working on reducing depression and preventing postpartum depression. One of the important reasons that I believe is important to provide mental health support in pregnancy is that we have an opportunity to help two people, both the mother and the baby. And so, what, as I said, one of our motivations for the study was really to see if we can show benefits not only for maternal depression, but also to look at child developmental outcomes. And that right now we're continuing to follow the moms and babies after birth. So we're excited to look at those kid outcomes as well. Lucia, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Lucia Davis is Professor of Psychology at the Seed Research Centre at the University of Denver, Colorado. Let's stay with children, especially early to mid-childhood, because a paper in the British Medical Journal has reported a strong link between physical and sexual abuse and neglect and dying prematurely, especially of chronic disease. And that's when they're adults. And some believe the link is cause and effect. The study followed 67,000 women for nearly 20 years and was able to compare those with a history of abuse and neglect in childhood with their health and chances of dying during the years of poor follow-up. Sexual abuse was more strongly linked than physical abuse and the causes of death included heart and respiratory diseases. The accompanying editorial was written by Professor Leonie Siegel, who's Research Chair in Health Economics and Social Policy at the University of South Australia, who has long called for systematic interventions to help such children and avoid these consequences. Pleasure to be here, Norman. So you're drawing a direct line between abuse and neglect in early life and premature death and chronic disease. How solid is that link? I think over the last three decades, the evidence is incontrovertible. We're finding a dose-response relationship. The more severe the abuse, the higher the risk. Some of our work, we found 49 times the risk of a teenager who'd had an abuse history removed from their home, ending up in ED with a mental health issue. We're finding the relationship between child abuse and neglect and poor health outcomes across the world, every study, a whole range of confounders taken account of. And we've got really strong causal mechanisms, partly through altered brain development. Children with severe abuse and neglect in early life, their brains develop differently. 
We also know that there's a stress response which increases levels of inflammation. So children who are continually on alert, continually looking out for what's going to happen to them, so they're hypervigilant. And that inflammation is, if you like, the stress response of the immune system, which actually increases the ageing of tissues like the arteries and so on. So it has a direct effect on heart disease and also the stress hormones raise your blood pressure and pulse. And to what extent are things like tobacco smoking? Some people say, well, might say, well, you're, you're more likely to use drug and alcohol if you're undergoing that kind of stress. I mean, how much is actually the developmental stress of experiencing physical, sexual, emotional abuse as a child? There's a direct effect versus the drugs and alcohol you might be using to, if you like, help ameliorate the stress. There's a number of compounding pathways and that's really one of the reasons we need to intervene early in life because if you have a child who's facing these disturbing situations, yes, they will self-medicate and yes, the evidence is there are higher rates of tobacco use and alcohol use. So effectively, I suppose what we're saying is they're not separable, they're actually compounding the harm, which is one of the reasons why it would be ideal to work with families and young children so that before they reach 11 and 12 and 13 and start to be using substances, we've had a chance to heal their trauma. Work that's done with mothers and children with child abuse history and the co-author on this paper has done a lot of work with particularly mothers and children that even doing set trauma-based therapeutic work with mothers who are already in their 20s and 30s, you can actually heal some of this and turn some of it around. It's both parents and ideally we can have both parents involved. What we do know is that a child whose mother or father who had abuse history are much more likely to end up being abused or neglected themselves. So that's why working with mother and child and we can then disrupt the intergenerational transmission pathway because it's actually the dominant pathway into child abuse and neglect. I mean, it's not that anybody wants to abuse their child. Everybody wants to be the best parent possible but their own trauma history gets in the way of their capacity to be the parent they want to be. Part of it is also being trauma responsive, so not triggering families and basically discouraging them from seeking services so often. You have people who are very shame-based, so it's quite easy for clinicians perhaps to not validate and not support families and then they'll run away and so then they're not getting even the sort of clinical services they need. Let's have a conversation to see what's sitting under it and perhaps work both on the presenting problem, but also is there some underlying trauma that's driving what we're seeing here? Leonie, thank you very much indeed. My pleasure. Professor Leonie Siegel is Research Chair in Health Economics and Social Policy at the University of South Australia. Now, Norman, I want to ask, are you much of a tennis player? No, I'm crap on the tennis court, but I used to play squash. Ah, well, in that case, you'll probably have a bit of a background understanding of what I'm about to talk about next, which is wearing protective eyewear during sport, which really isn't, isn't, isn't much of a thing in any sport except for squash. So there is a group of people who want people to consider wearing eye protection during sport. Not surprisingly, they're ophthalmologists. But according to a recent paper, the cost of eye injuries in sport is eye-watering and the vast, vast majority of them would be avoided if people wore appropriate glasses or goggles. Lead author on the paper is Dr Brendan Lee and he joins us now. Welcome, Brendan. Thank you very much for having me on the program. What's the scale of these sporting-related eye injuries? As an ophthalmologist or eye surgeon in training, I unfortunately see way too many of these eye injuries coming into the emergency department. 
my PhD work at the University of Sydney under the guidance of Associate Professor Chamin Saramek Rama, we looked at almost 700 eye injuries over 10 years and showed that these injuries are just incredibly prevalent and occurring in you know, sport, both competitively, but also during weekend leisure activities, as well as the workplace and kind of do-it-yourself projects at home. So we've got sports like cricket and soccer, that they're some of the key offenders. Badminton's one of the ones you mentioned. And then also, yeah, weekend warriors at home, basically just where people maybe should be wearing eye protection, but they're just not. Yeah, that's correct. So I think we've found that there are some sports where there are some standards that have been recently published by the Australian standards, which mandate um, protective eyewear, such as in squash. But there are many other uh, sports like footy, soccer, cricket and horse riding where these standards don't exist and the compliance is generally quite poor. It's not super trendy to wear eye protection in sports like footy. It would be a real cultural change if people were to start doing that. Yeah, that's right. And I think the thing I tell my patients is that if you wear the eye protection up front, that avoids you having to wear a pirate patch or maybe having severe vision loss afterwards. So that's what I always recommend to patients that, you know, it might not be trendy initially, but you're really saving yourself a lot of time, a lot of pain and potentially saving yourself from a sight threatening injury. There's nothing trendier than having two intact eyes uh, if you can avoid it. So talk about the cost of these injuries like, and then sort of how many could be avoided if people did wear eye protection. Yeah, so my PhD has shown that the total cost of these injuries for Australia is, is estimated to be around 100 to $140 million per year. So it's quite a significant amount. And this includes costs both to the hospital, but also social costs like costs to the employer and also workers' compensation. And there are some other things that we find difficult to measure, so long-term psychological impacts, but also early retirement from the workforce and welfare expenses or costs to the carers. So this could blow the cost even higher. And I think the things that we found in, our PhD, in my PhD is that up to 90% of these injuries really are preventable. And so you can imagine if people were wearing eye protection, that could mean tens of millions of dollars saved from the hospital system, but also money that can be used elsewhere for the government. What kind of injuries? In the paper, they talk about closed globe injuries. For those of us who aren't ophthalmologists, what is a closed globe injuries and what does the treatment involve? For injuries, um, there's a wide spectrum that can happen from um, sport or these kind of activities. And they can be superficial, like a scratch on the cornea, which is the front of the eye, or like a piece of metal that's embedded in the eye from people who have been grinding or people playing footy and something has gotten into the eye. And those are more superficial and minor, but the injuries can also be incredibly severe and sight-threatening, like a globe rupture or a penetrating eye injury where the structural integrity of the eye is actually lost. And these have significant consequences to the patient's vision. Often they need to undergo multiple surgeries and unable to drive afterwards or even live the same life they had prior to the injury. I mean, my stomach's turning hearing you describe those things, but it's also incredibly disruptive, involves people maybe needing to care for that person as well. So what kind of interventions are you hoping for in terms of a cultural shift or do we need mandates when it comes to eye protection? Yeah, so I think the important thing for listeners at home is to know that regular spectacles or sunglasses um, actually offer very little levels of resistance to impact. And in fact, they actually may pose a secondary hazard. So when they uh, are hit by a strong object, they can actually shatter and cause glass to enter the eye. So it's actually really important that that kind of protection is not enough. 
uh, things to keep in mind is to use polycarbonate lenses that actually wrap around the eye or safety goggles. These are generally quite lightweight and 10 times more impact resistant than the normal glass or plastic used in glasses. You know, there's obviously a lot of work to be done, but the main thing is to increase public awareness and education for people who uh, participate in sport and also the, at the organizational level, kind of improving the social acceptance and, if needed, trying to mandate the use of eye protection like what has occurred in competitive squash. Brendan, uh, it sounds like uh, there's some sunglass companies that could be taking some notes from you. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Tegan. Appreciate it. Dr. Brendan Lee is an eye surgeon in training and a PhD candidate at the University of Sydney. We need some famous sports people to set an example here, don't you think? I think so. But that's all we've got time for tonight. We'll see you next week. See you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.